Order. Questions to the Prime Minister. Gavin Barwell. Number one, Mr yeah. Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. I'm sure the whole House will wish to join me in paying tribute to Private Dean Hutchinson from 9 Regiment, the Royal Logistic Corps, and Private Robert Wood from 17 Port and Maritime Regiment, the Royal Logistic Corps. They were killed in a fire at Camp Bastion on Monday the 14th of February. Their service for the safety of the British people will not be forgotten, and we send our deepest condolences to their families, their friends and their colleagues. Mr Speaker, I'm sure the whole House would also wish to join me in sending our deepest sympathies to the people of New Zealand and to all those who lost loved ones, including, sadly, at least four British citizens in the earthquake last week. We've sent two teams of experts to provide whatever assistance they can. Mr Speaker, this morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Mr Gavin Barwell. I'm sure the whole House would indeed wish to associate itself with the Prime Minister's remarks, both in relation to our brave servicemen and to the people of New Zealand. Mr Speaker, despite the urgent need to reduce the deficit, the Government took the right decision not just to protect but to increase the overseas aid budgets. What capacity does that give us to respond to the urgent humanitarian situation on the Libyan border? I think my honourable friend makes an important point, which is in spite of the difficult decisions we've had to take, I think it is right to keep increasing the aid budget. And sadly, what is happening on the Egyptian and Tunisian borders with Libya shows how how important that decision is. As as Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon said last night, there are serious indications of a growing humanitarian crisis. The information is that some 162,000 people have crossed the land borders so far. We have sent technical DFID teams to both the borders, and yesterday we flew in tents for 1,500 people and blankets for 36,000 people. And I can tell the House that today we're launching a UK operation to airlift several thousand people back to Egypt from the Libyan-Tunisian border, with the first flight scheduled to leave the UK later today. I think it's vital to do this. These people shouldn't be kept in transit camps, if it's possible, to take them back to their home. And I'm glad that Britain can play such an important part in doing that. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, can I join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to Private Dean Hutchinson from 9 Regiment, the Royal Logistics Corps, and Private Robert Wood from 17 Port and Maritime Regiment, the Royal Logistics Corps. They both showed enormous heroism and courage in their service in Afghanistan, and our thoughts are with their family and friends. I also join the Prime Minister in passing on condolences and deepest sympathy to the victims of the New Zealand earthquake. Can I ask him about the situation in Libya, starting with the humanitarian crisis? I welcome the bilateral action being taken by the government, including the steps that he has announced today in the visit of the International Development Secretary. Can I ask what support he is also offering to multilateral organisations like the World Food Programme and the United Nations High Commission for Refugees in dealing with what, as he says, is a growing refugee emergency on the Libyan border? Well, I thank the Honourable Gentleman for his question. In addition to the steps I announced about the airlift from the Tunisian border back to Egypt, there's also HMS York that is now docked in Benghazi carrying a lot of medical and other supplies that will be able to help with the humanitarian mission. He asked specifically about helping with the multilateral organisations. Obviously, we are in very close touch with them, particularly with 
Ocha and with Valerie Amos, and we're delighted that actually it's John Ging, who, who many in the House will know from the UN, who did such excellent work for UNRWA in, in Palestine, is going to be coordinating that effort. We'll remain in close contact with them as one of their lead partners, do everything we can to help coordinate this effort. We have the forward basing of a lot of tents and other equipment uh, in Dubai, which means that it is relatively close to the area, and we'll go on doing everything we can to ease uh, the problems at the border and make sure that this emergency doesn't turn into a crisis. Ed Miliband. Can I thank him for that reply, Mr Speaker, and I'm sure he'll keep the House uh, updated. We both agreed on Monday that the international community must take all practical steps for a democratic outcome in Libya. On Monday, the Prime Minister floated the idea of a no-fly zone. Uh, on Tuesday, however, a number of foreign governments distanced themselves from the idea. Can the Prime Minister clarify where that proposal now stands? Well, I think the, the point I'd make is this. Our first priority as a country, of course, should be to evacuate our fellow countrymen uh, from Libya. That process is gone well now, and there are very few who want to leave who are still in Libya. The second thing we should do is to put every available pressure on the Libyan regime, and we've done that through travel bans, through asset freezes, through arms embargoes, and we should keep on looking for other ways in which we can pressurise the regime. We've just spoken about the humanitarian crisis, which must be the next steps uh, that we take to ease that. What I was saying on Monday, and what I'd say again today, is I do think it's the job of leaders and the Western world in particular to prepare for all eventualities and all the things that might happen, particularly if Colonel Gaddafi unleashes uh, more uh, things on his own people. And on that grounds, yes, I think we should, and we are uh, looking at plans for a no-fly zone. And I was particularly heartened by what Secretary of State Clinton said. She said a no-fly zone is an option we are actively considering. It's being discussed. These issues are being discussed in the North Atlantic Council this morning, and I think it's right that they are. Mr Ed Miliband. I emphasise to the Prime Minister, as I'm sure he will agree, that over sanctions there was a clear sense of unity in the international community, and clearly that is what we must strive for in any future decisions that we make. Now, he will also understand the concern in the country and in the armed forces that after he spoke about the no-fly zone, the government issued redundancy notices to thousands of RAF personnel. C can he reassure the House and indeed the country that any increase in our military commitments that he is talking about, including in North Africa, can be met at a time when we are reducing capability? I can give him that assurance, and, and let me be clear, of course it is never easy to reduce the numbers in our armed forces, but this government decided, I think quite rightly, to hold a strategic defence review, because frankly we hadn't had one for 12 years in this country, and we did inherit a defence budget that was in, I have to say, a state of complete chaos. Let me... And, and the outcome of the, of course, the background to the defence review is the enormous black hole in our nation's finances. But the aim of the defence review is to make sure that we have flexible, well-equipped armed forces that are able to serve our national interests around the world. And that is exactly what I believe they'll be able to do. Any mordant. After Romford Hospital, next on the waiting list for PFI surgery should be Portsmouth's Queen Alexandra Hospital. Does my honourable friend agree that massive annual repayments and restrictive procurement practices are preventing best care from being delivered, that the contract should go under the knife and the savings given to Portsmouth's health economy, not Treasury coffers? Well, the honourable lady makes a very good point, which is next to the Ministry of Defence budget, the other shambles we inherited was the PFI programme. And frankly, the, the public sector is going to be spending 
something like £8 billion on PFI contracts just this year. So we've got to examine all these contracts for savings. Let me give her a couple of examples of some of the nonsenses that we inherited under these contracts. Well, they may not, they may not want to, to hear it. £333 to change a hospital light switch. £963 for a new TV aerial in a hospital. Some of the terms of these contracts are frankly disgraceful, and it's quite right we look at them. Thank you, Mr Speaker. On the the politics show of February 13th, Boris Johnson's Deputy Mayor for Policing, Kit Malthouse, boasted that he would ensure that every Safer Neighbourhood team in every ward in London would keep its two PCs and three police community (coughs) service officers, and that he had the power to guarantee it. However, uh, police officers in Mitcham have already told my constituents that those teams have been merged and that every Safer Neighbourhood team has been reduced to one police officer. Who does he believe? The London Mayor or serving police officers? I think it is worth listening to both serving and retired police officers, and she might want to listen to Jan Berry, who for years led the Police Federation, who said this, with unnecessary bureaucracy being added at every tier of policing, from the local to the national, I estimate one-third of effort, one-third of effort is either over-engineered, duplicated, or adds no additional value. This is unaffordable in the current climate, and we need to give consideration about how we can realise savings in time and energy. As in so many areas, we inherited a police service completely inefficient, not properly managed by the party opposite. Mark Halsey. There's an independent committee which ensures that uh, once they've left office, former ministers act appropriately in their subsequent employment. Uh, It's reported that Lord Mandelson, Baroness Simons and Adam Ingram have worked for the Gaddafi regime. Will the Prime Minister ensure that these are thoroughly investigated? I think the Honourable Gentleman makes a good point, and I'm sure those ministers and ex-ministers will want to immediately refer themselves to that committee so that their links can be looked into. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, the Prime Minister and the Local Government Secretary are adamant that there is no need for cuts in local authority frontline services. Can the Prime Minister therefore explain why Conservative-run Bromley Council is shutting 13 of its 16 children's centres? What we have done, yes, is we have made reductions. We have made reductions in local government grant because, frankly, we inherited a complete mess in terms of this nation's finances. But what we have have done is we've asked every single local authority to make public every single bit of spending it does so that members of the public can make sure they're cutting bureaucracy, they're cutting council allowances, they're cutting pay rather than cutting services. And perhaps when he gets to his feet, he can tell us why there's only one authority in the entire country, Labour-run Nottingham, that refuses to do so. You know he's losing the argument when he starts asking me the questions, Mr Speaker. And, and why, why, are, why are the cuts being made in Sure Start Children's Centres? Because he's cutting the early year's budget. The Department of Education's own figures show an 11% cut between this year and next year. And he's not just cutting the budget, he's removed the ring fence that kept those Sure Start Centres open, that protected the budget. Now, Mr Speaker... We are getting used to the Prime Minister's question, U-turn. We've seen it on school sport, we've seen it on housing benefit, and we've seen it most recently on forests. 
I, I mean, he does have a capacity to ditch a policy and dump a colleague in it. So why doesn't he, so, so why doesn't he when he returns to the dispatch box, dump this policy, dump this policy too? Why doesn't he dump this policy too? And why doesn't, why doesn't he reinstate the sure start ring fence? In a minute, he's going to give me a lesson on family loyalty. <laughs> Look, let me say this to the right honourable gentleman. Let me say this to the honourable gentleman. He comes here every week and he says he opposes the defence cuts, he opposes changes in the Home Office, he opposes any changes to local government, and yet, in four weeks' time, in four weeks' time, in four weeks' time, his own cuts programme, the Darling programme, comes into place. £14 billion of cuts, only £2 billion less than we propose, starting in four weeks' time. So it's about time he got off his opportunistic bandwagon and started to produce some policies of his own. This is a guy who's made his career out of opportunism, not. Remember what he said at the election? He was strongly committed to Shawstar. He would improve Shawstar. And if anyone suggested otherwise, it was an absolute disgrace. As children's centres face closure, people know he's got it in his power to stop it happening by reinforcing that sure start ring fence. He's the Prime Minister. It might not have looked like it last week, but why doesn't he get a grip? What we are doing for children in this country is we are funding education for two-year-olds for the first time. We're putting money into the pupil premium, something he didn't do for 13 years. We're making sure money is focused on the most disadvantaged. That is, that is what is actually happening. And when the party opposite look at his performance... <laughs> nothing, nothing... <laughs> the, uh, the point... The sure order, order. Let's have a bit of order in the house. I want to get to the bottom of the order paper, and the house needs to help in that process. The prime minister. The, the money for sure start is there, so centres don't have to close. Yes. And I think, and I think, when the party opposite considers his performance, it could be time for a bit of brother. Where art thou, Mr. Roger Gale? Mr. Speaker, very recently. Eight members from both of these Houses of Parliament met in Islamabad with Mr. Shabazz Bhatti. This morning, we learned that Mr. Bhatti, on his way to work, was murdered. Mr. Bhatti was a man committed to peace and multi-faith reconciliation. Will my right honourable friend send, through the High Commission, our condolences to the government and to his family? And will he restate our belief that there is no place for this kind of action anywhere in a democratic world. Yes. I think my right honourable friend speaks for the whole House and I'm sure the whole country. It was absolutely shocking news to hear this morning about this minister, who is a Christian minister in um, Pakistan, being killed in this way, absolutely brutal and unacceptable. And I think it shows what a huge problem we have in our world with intolerance. And I think what he said is absolutely right. And I will send the, uh, not only our condolences, but our clearest possible message to the government and people of Pakistan that this is simply unacceptable. Stephen Timms. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Two weeks ago, the Prime Minister gave the House some figures to criticise the flexible New Deal. I thought they sounded a bit odd, so I asked the House of Commons Library to check 
and their response says, and I quote, this is a misleading interpretation of the statistics. They, they pointed out that the DWP website warns directly against interpreting the figures in the way the Prime Minister did interpret them. Uh, in, in future, can he get someone to check his figures before he gives them to the House? I can, show, I can assure the Honourable Gentleman that the figures were properly checked and I will write him a letter outlining not only, not only the figures for the flexible New Deal that so many people know was just a revolving door for young people who needed employment, but I will also add in the figures uh, for the Future Jobs Fund, which cost five times as much as many other programmes. John Glenn. Thank you, Mr Speaker. With the police using 2,000 different IT systems, employing 5,000 staff, isn't now the time for this government to start reforming practices in the police so that more resources can be devoted to fighting crime on the front line? Yeah. I think my honourable friend makes an extremely important point. The British police are incredibly brave, incredibly professional, and all of us see how hard they work in our communities. But frankly, they are let down by a system that has far too many officers in back office roles, in HR, in IT, and not on the streets. That's what needs to change, along with some of the working practices that, frankly, aren't actually uh, modern and up-to-date. And we need to make sure that happens so we keep the maximum number of police on the front line in our communities. Gregory Campbell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The armed forces have our total support and admiration. Uh, traditionally, they would have looked to a Conservative government, uh, whether in good economic times or bad, to defend them as they defend us. Given the deplorable treatment that they are currently receiving, whether by email or hard copy, what plans does he have to restore faith in government? What I would say to the Honourable Gentleman, I think everyone in this House appreciates it, that our armed forces are amongst the most brave and professional anywhere in the world, and we can be incredibly uh, proud of what they do. And in terms of making sure that we do look after them, this Government has introduced a doubling of the operational allowance for all those serving in Afghanistan. We're the first government in history to introduce a pupil premium so the children of service personnel get extra money when they go uh, to school. We're making sure that the R&R leave is properly uh, formed. We're, we're writing out the military covenant and properly referencing in it in law. And above all, most important of all, is to have a defence review and make sure our forces are fit for the future. And to all those who express concern, I would make this point. At the end of that defence review, we will have the fourth largest military budget in the world. We'll have some of the most capable weapons that any air force in the world could have. We'll have the new Type 45 destroyers. We'll have our nuclear deterrent and we'll have a superbly professional army. That is what we want in our country and that is what this government will support. Drew Jones. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Will the Prime Minister join me in encouraging schools in my constituency, Harrogate and Nersborough, and schools right across the country to get involved in the Tenor Tycoon School Business Competition, which encourages enterprise and is running this month. Yes, it sounds like an excellent scheme, and I think there's a lot that we should do to encourage business and enterprise to go into our schools, to encourage young people to think about a career in starting up business, in small business, and in enterprise. I think it's a very important part of a rounded education. Hila Gilmore. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. On Sunday, a woman asked me what politicians were going to do for people like her. She'd been waiting for a DLA appeal for 11 months. Given the rollout of the Employment Support Allowance, the proposals for more reviews, more assessments in DLA, what plans does the Prime Minister have for expanding the tribunal service, 
And has this been fully costed in his welfare reforms? Well, this House is obviously going to have a, a lot of opportunity to debate the welfare bill, which is one of the most complex and detailed pieces of legislation about reforming our, our welfare system. In terms of DLA specifically, what we're looking for in terms of the gateway is to make sure that people have a proper assessment for DLA, because there are too many cases where people who need it and don't get it, and regrettably some cases where people don't need it and do get it, and we need to put that right. Sir Peter Tapsell. While we must clearly do everything that we can to help the non-Libyans who are seeking to get out of that country, may we hope that the Libyans will be allowed to determine the fate of Colonel Gaddafi? Well, I very much hope that they do, and I think we should support and say how much we admire those brave people who are standing up in their own country asking for greater freedoms, greater democracy, for things that we take for granted in our own country. And what I think has been striking is to many who said any sort of rebellion like this would either be extremist or Islamist or tribal, it is none of those things. It is a revolt by the people who actually want to have greater democracy in their country. Graham Morris. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Last week, Save the Children published research showing 1.6 million children are living in severe poverty in the United Kingdom. And yet this week, the government has failed to include low-income families in the warm home discount scheme. Uh, for a rebate on their energy bills. Will the Prime Minister meet with uh, Save the Children on this critical issue and ask the Chancellor to publish an emergency plan to tackle severe child poverty in the budget and the child poverty strategy later this month? Well, I do see Save the Children regularly, and I think they are an excellent organisation, both in terms of the work they do overseas, but also the pressure they rightly keep uh, to bear here in this country. What we've done in terms of trying to help with child poverty is make sure we massively increase the child tax credit. That's what we've done in the budget and in the spending round, to make sure that while we're making difficult decisions, child poverty hasn't increased. Gareth Johnson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister will know that for years the welfare state has been are too easily abused. Can the Prime Minister therefore assure this House that in future the welfare state will act as a safety net for the unfortunate and not as a way of life for the work shy? What this government is doing, and it is a historic reform, is making sure that the welfare state always means that it is worthwhile someone being in work and worthwhile someone working more. That is what universal credit is all about, and I think it will make a huge difference to welfare in this country. Reza Pierce. Many of the most poor and disadvantaged children in my constituency will not be included in the pupil premium, as their parents are still waiting for their immigration status to be settled, and therefore they have no access to funds and are not eligible for free school meals. Will the Prime Minister ask his ministers to meet with myself and other members in constituencies like mine to discuss a way to capture the number of these children to ensure that our schools are not underfunded? I think the Honourable Lady makes an important point, and when we established the pupil premium, we did actually have a number of discussions to try and work out the best basis to put it on. And in the short term, I think the free school meals indicator was the best basis, but I'm very happy to arrange a meeting between her and my right honourable friend, the Education Secretary, to see what we can do to make sure we really are targeting those most in need. And I think there may be opportunities, perhaps not uh, this year, but in the future, to make sure the pupil premium is helping those who most need it. 
Stephen Williams. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Yesterday, the Secretary of State for Transport made a most welcome announcement of electrification of the Great Western Main Line to Bristol, Cardiff, and the South Wales Valleys, and the fact that the jobs uh, for producing those trains will be in the northeast of England. Doesn't this show that the Coalition Government not only has a strategy for growth, but that vision, that vision for growth is both high-tech and green? The Honourable Gentleman makes a very good point. 13 years, and they never electrified the West Coast Main Line out to, uh, out to Cardiff, which we've managed to announce within nine months. So he's absolutely right. And the good news is, the good news is it's not just the electrification of the line to Cardiff, it is also the new factory in Newton Aycliffe that is going to build these trains, and also pressing ahead with HS2. Tom Blinkinsop, make sure you catch the next right train on Saturday. Does the Prime Minister think it right that he tells journalists on a plane that the United Kingdom is paying bribes to Libya? And does he agree with the Foreign Office assessment that he was both loose-tongued and reckless? Um, I'm very grateful for this question, of course, uh, Mr Speaker. Uh, the, the, the point that I would make is that clearly in getting people out of Libya, we did have to pay some uh, facilitation payments for the services um, in the airport. And as the Honourable Gentleman says, I'm sure they are entirely proper. Mr Philip Hollabone. The Royal British Legion has welcomed the Prime Minister's personal commitment to have a new military covenant enshrined into the law of the land. But it has also made it quite clear that it does not accept the government's present proposals for an annual Armed Forces Covenant report honours that promise. Will my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, work constructively with the Royal British Legion to agree a definition of the military covenant that can be enshrined into legislation? I'm very happy to work with the Royal British Legion. I think they are one of the uh, most important and hard-working organisations anywhere in our country. They don't just do a great job in lobbying for the armed forces. They also do, I think, a brilliant job in all our constituencies in looking after uh, former service personnel. I'm very happy to have that conversation. But what I want to make sure is not only do we reference properly the, uh, the, um, the covenant in law, but we regularly debate it, improve it and enhance it partly through debates in this House. Mr Nigel Dodds. Thank the Prime Minister and his right honourable friend in the Northern Ireland office for the work they did in securing an extra £200 million for the police service in Northern Ireland to combat the dissident terrorist threat and that will undoubtedly save lives and prevent the creation of further victims. And on victims, given our campaign for compensation for the IRA victims of Libyan state-sponsored terrorism, can uh, the Prime Minister give us an assurance that before normalisation of relations with Libya under any new regime, that this outstanding matter of compensation will be addressed by the government, uh, not least perhaps by the use of Gaddafi assets in, seized in Britain? Well, first of all, can I thank the Honourable Gentleman for what he says about the additional funding for the police in Northern Ireland. We think it is absolutely vital that we uh, work hard with the administration to make sure the security situation there is as good as it possibly can be. In terms of what he says about compensation from the Libyans to victims of IRA terror, there is an FCO-led unit that is still working on that issue, and I think it is vitally important they go on doing that. Clearly, it's an ingenious idea to use the um, frozen assets in this way. I have to say, having sought advice, I think the first use, those assets really do belong to the Libyan people. Um, and I think the whole problem with Libya is it is a rich country with poor people. And I think we can see that in terms of the extensive assets uh, that have been frozen. And those assets in the, belong to the Libyan people first and foremost. Mark Lancaster. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. 
Milton Keynes Council has been praised for its commitment to publish all expenditure over £500, ensuring that local residents can see exactly how their council tax money is being spent. Um, what message would the Prime Minister give to other local authorities who seem determined to keep their residents firmly in the dark? Uh, our old friend makes an extremely good point, and I know the party opposite are embarrassed about this because we have transparency now from almost every single council in the country, apart from one that is controlled by the Labour Party, Nottingham, who won't tell us where they're spending their money. And I want every single person in our country, and I want every single member of Parliament, all councillors, be able to make sure that the money's going on services and not on salaries, bureaucracy and allowances. That's the pressure at a time of austerity and difficult national decisions we should be making, and how typical of Labour just to try and cover it all up. Mr Richard Burden. In response to a question from me in December, the Community Secretary expressed himself delighted with the level of cuts being faced by Birmingham. Yesterday, Birmingham City Council cut £212 million from its budget, hitting care for the elderly, for the disabled and youth services. Does the Prime Minister share his Community Secretary's delight, or does he think that Birmingham is going too far, too fast? Look, every council in the country is having to make difficult decisions in terms of reducing its spending. In most of the cases, when you look at what's actually happening to government grants, it is going back to the level of grants that they had in 2007 or in 2006, or in some cases, even 2009. Everyone has to take part in this, and I just remind the House and the Honourable Gentleman, the reason this is being done is because his party made a complete mess of the economy. Thank you, Mr Speaker. At a time when prices at the petrol pumps are going up and up, will the Prime Minister and the Government do all they can to uh, ease the pressure on hard-pressed motorists? The the Honourable Gentleman makes an extremely good point, and I know how difficult it is for motorists, particularly for small businesses and families, when they're filling up at the pumps and it's over £1.30 a a litre. As we've said, we will look at the fact that extra revenue comes to the Treasury when there is a higher oil price and see if we can share some of the benefit of that with the motorists, something that the party opposite never did in all its time in government. And they ought to be reminded of the fact that they announced four increases in fuel duty last year, three of which were due to come in after the election. Rachel Reeves. Thank you, Mr Speaker. £90 million worth of cuts to the budget of Leeds City Council means that Bramley Barbs in my constituency will see its hours cut so that schools will not be able to swim there anymore. How does this fit with the government's ambition for school sports and for an Olympic legacy for Leeds? Well, we do want to see a proper legacy come out of the Olympics, and that is why we are funding the Olympics properly and why we've made very clear the extra money that will be made available um, for school sport. But as I say, every council, and if you look at education funding, funding per pupil is not being reduced because of difficult decisions made elsewhere and because of difficult decisions not supported ever by the party opposite. We're maintaining per pupil funding for students throughout our country. I think that's the right decision and one she should get behind. Gordon Birtwistle. Thank you, Mr Speaker. When Colonel Gaddafi is finally removed, is the Prime Minister confident that an interim government can be found that an interim government can be found to prevent the country falling into anarchy? Uh, I, I would advise the Honourable Gentleman to ignore the voices opposite. They're just furious at the fact that he liberated a, lab- a long-held Labour seat. Um, he makes a... Uh, he makes a very good point. One of the things that we are doing in the, in, in the 
currently and in the coming days is making contact with the opposition in Benghazi to make sure that we have good contacts with them so that we can help to bring a peaceful transition in Libya.